Do you see why I don't like when we record too many ahead of time? Because this episode isn't going to go out for like a month and the Queen just died. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Our next episode goes out in a few days and it's just like us, like no comment. Yeah, yeah. Welcome to Bread and Barricade, the lamest podcast. My name is Nemo Martin. I use they them pronouns. I am your host. And uh, before we started recording, I was actually glad uh, Stevie had internet troubles because there was a fly flying around my room and I spent about 15 minutes trying to catch it <laughs> and make it leave because I was like, I could leave it in here for some ambient sounds, but I uh, thought that that was probably not great podcasting so devoted my life to trying to get this fly out in the end it turned out what i needed to do was turn my lights off make my computer the only light that was in the room and then like wait in stillness with a cup until the fly landed on my computer and then i copped it and then once i had copped it i realized i didn't have paper to go underneath it because i hadn't planned that far ahead and so i one-handedly like scooped it up <laughs> under the cup and then like threw it out of my window um so yeah the the adventure that i've had today <laughs> we are currently watching the new being puppy cat uh-huh. so i imagined that whole story you were telling me that you were a puppy cat type <laughs> uh cartoon and it worked really well it was very it was very nice and fun to imagine great thanks uh this is stevie she they pronouns uh primary researcher to go with your with nemo's fly sound ambience <laughs> I'm bringing us a uh, scent ambiance. Uh-huh. I have a log fire candle going. Oh my god! Is it? Does it just smell like burning house? Yeah, which is like one of my favorite smells. I love okay. the smell of things burning, like that, legitimately. Yeah. Um, it's like a Muji one, so it's like some fancy wood mm. burning. I guess is it sandalwood? Uh, it doesn't say, but I've got another Muji burning wood candle that's like hickory. I think mm-hmm. they're just good, but yeah, to make so usually on a Monday, my partner's like, "So, when are you guys gonna start recording?" <laughs> and I'm like, "Me and Nemo are playing Lamer's Chicken like we do every Monday," <laughs> and she never judges us, but she checks every week, so the non-judgment feels more like, "Oh, we should do it." <laughs> Um, except today, she didn't ask, and I was like, so anyway, I'm going to go read for Les Mis, and she was like, don't! <laughs> <laughs> I just, like, wanted to hold on to me so I couldn't come read for a bit, then I was like, what? This is the one time I'm, like, ready to go. <laughs> so, I am Victor Hugo's strongest soldier, I guess, oh my but I was God. like, no, I am still going to go read and record, even though... You're being very cute. We had to do it this week because uh, next week is the Queen's funeral and we have to take the whole day off um, as her loyal peasants. It's the law here. I don't know if you all knew that, but... (laughs) (sighs) Talking about it's the law, (laughs) I don't know. You know what? It is the law. This chapter, the chain gang. Excellent. But actually, maybe first? First chapter of this kind of as like thematically linked I would say to you know the last couple chapters we've had mm. from the Jean Valjean POV everything's shit mm. <laughs> like Cosette is 
maybe seen a boy. He he's not sh- well. He thinks he's she's seen a boy, and he thinks that it's his fault that like he drew her attention to him. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he's just really sad about realizing that she realizes she's beautiful, and like he's not going to get as much of her attention anymore. So we're getting those kind of vibes. And at the beginning of this chapter, it's like. You know, they were both unhappy at the end of the last episode. Mm. But the more unhappy of the two was Jean Valjean. Because youth, even in its sorrows, always has its own brightness. Whereas he's just suffering so much that he's becoming childish. (laughs) It is characteristic of grief to bring out the child in the man. Because he can Mm. feel her slipping away. And he wants to fight back and detain her and win her back over. Um, (laughs) But even... Even Hugo's like, oh, this is very childish of him. Um, very typical of old age. The like he passes a general on the street in a fancy uh gilded uniform on horseback, and he's envies him because he's like, Oh, if I was in that outfit, uh, which nobody could ignore, then Cosette would be dazzled by me and I'd give her my arm, we'd walk around the fancy gates, and Cosette would be satisfied. And she wouldn't think to look at uh, at young men anymore, <laughs> which leads us on to a delightful <laughs> essay. That essay, uh, journal article that Nemo will be sharing with us. Yeah, <laughs> I like that you set it up like, um, um, and this is my son, and he's going to do a he's going to do a project today. But yes, uh, instead of doing a, a whole spin off episode, I hopefully this won't take too long but actually as I was reading for it the second time today I was like oh my god there's quite a lot here that's quite hilarious so um there's an article called oh it starts with French so de Autremont, sexuality disembodiment and the young woman's voice in Les Miserables and I didn't realize well I did but like hadn't connected the dots it's written by brianna lewis who was on the panel with us uh at barricade convention um amazing and it's just like (laughs) i kept like sending screenshots of pretty much every paragraph of it to stevie (laughs) this morning because as i was reading i was like oh we're gonna have to like send an apology notice to andrew davies (laughs) writer of the bbc show um so I have highlighted some paragraphs and I will read them out. And then Stevie, if you find them funny, you can comment on them and you can do my job today. (laughs) (laughs) So on September the 4th, oh, oh man, we should have recorded this a week ago. Anyway. Oh my God. (laughs) So many missed opportunities. Well, it wouldn't have come out for a month. (laughs) We should have recorded it next year. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And then it would be uh, 80 years. Um, Anyway. 180 years. I can do maths. So on September 4th, 1843, what would be the greatest catastrophe in the lives of Victor Hugo and his family unfolded at Villequier, a small town on the Seine? His daughter Leopoldine drowned in a boating accident along with her new husband, Charles Fakir, and his uncle. One of its more surprising elements, according to biographer Graham Robb, was a dramatic increase in the already virile poet's sexual appetite and in his number of sexual partners. Robb offers a compelling hypothesis of the link between the two in Hugo's mind. Quote, God had deprived him of his daughter for no discernible purpose. 
This disillusionment with the Divine Father is a valuable key in Hugo's seemingly squalid behaviour in the years to come. Sin and depravity were infinitely preferable to the thought of the malevolent creator. In other words, Hugo's understanding of divine justice was so intolerably shaken by his undeserved loss that he set to the task of deserving it in an attempt to set at setting the universe back in order. It does not escape notice, however, that in this response to the loss of a young woman involves acts committed with, and arguably against, other young women of Leopoldine's approximate age. In the years between 1843 and his departure into exile in 1851, he frequented actresses and courtesans and sex workers who specialised in stripping. He seduced many an enthralled and starstruck female fan. That's just the first page. Oh my god. <laughs> it was like the middle bit. Yeah. Where he's like, I, this made no sense. So I would rather, like, do something terrible that would make the punishment, like, retroactively make sense. You're like, okay. Mm. But everything around it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because, uh, yeah. I, I, when we were talking about the BBC adaptation, we were talking about how there was one interview with Andrew Davies where he was saying that he really, um, he saw the relationship between Jean Valjean and Cosette and he really, really uh, uh, related to it as a father of daughters. Mm. And then we were like, so then why is your Jean Valjean like a creeper and like has sexual <laughs> desires for his daughter? But now it seems like he, like Brianna Lewis and Graham Robb are implying that like... <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, Nemo is referring to the part in the script mm. where Cosette is getting changed, and it like specifically says that Jean Valjean like looks in the mirror to get a glimpse of her. Like, I don't, I don't think she was naked. No, was she, she was just undressing. Undressing, and that he was like, "Oh, he's in trouble." Yeah, we were like, "We didn't that." I guess you that's telling your actor to like act that out, but like you didn't need to <laughs> it didn't need to be written there. We we wouldn't have known. No. Like, what does it add? <laughs> what does it all add? What does it all mean? <laughs> <laughs> it just means that Andrew Davies studied Hugo harder than we ever did. And he for studied that, the play. We, <laughs> we have to apologize. <laughs> we have to yeah, we have to do a a like four hour long apology video. It's uh, baddies all the way down. Um, yeah. Moving on to more. <laughs> um, Cosette is easily recognisable as Leopoldine's clearest avatar in the novel, particularly in the tenderness of the father-daughter relationship. And tender. She shares with Jean Valjean and in his response to her marriage. At the same time, she remain, remains apart from uh, Fontaine and Eponine as she ascends with the help of Jean Valjean from suffering and effacement to wealth and status, opposing the other women's descent into suffering and death. Nicole Savvy, however, connects her good fortune to their suffering, even going so far as to describe Cosette as a vampire. It is through her resemblance to it is through Cosette's resemblance to Leopoldine, Leopoldine in life, rather than in her early death, that Cosette manifests and transforms Hugo's beloved daughter, but she lives on at the expense of others' early demise. Which I thought was really interesting because I've been writing a lot about, oh, mentioned it last episode or in one of the last episodes about um, how we can argue that Cosette is a white woman 
And another one of the big things of pretty much every adaptation that makes Cosette into a white woman is that it's all of the people of color. It's Eponine, it's Fontaine, it's it's um, the Barricade Boys. All of them have to die in order to have Cosette live. And by naming that she's a white woman, we can see that her relationship with the world she is protected in a way and 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 by saying that like by by literally linking leopoldine and victor hugo what lewis does is be like yes yeah, she is protected like it's not just like uh metaphorical i guess white female innocence and purity that is being protected and enshrined but it is like literally as well and Hugo doesn't care who has to die in order for Cosette slash Leopoldine to continue living, mm. even if it's within the novel. And I just thought that the the Cosette is vampire thing is a really interesting. Instead of being the like victim, she 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 does take the life force of everyone else in order to yeah. survive, even if it's not the quote unquote like right thing. Yeah, that theory kind of went off. Yeah. <laughs> Did we have? Uh, was there another quote about Hugo and his daughter and all those? Oh, kind of related to the bit of the chapter I was just reading out. Like, Hugo was really not happy with Leopoldine getting married? Yeah, it's there's another quote here. <laughs> uh, i give us some, some sick quotes. <laughs> <laughs> Biographers indicate no reason to suspect incestuous feelings or actions between Hugo and Leopoldine. Thank you, biographers. But the father's intense <laughs> resistance to seeing his daughter married and therefore implicitly sexualized is well documented. Hugo's opposition to Leopoldine's courtship with Charles Vacquier was known to the family and her mother, sister and aunt, as well as Charles, Charles's brother and Hugo's disciple Auguste Vacquier, who all conspired behind the patriarch's back to unite the young lovers. According to Rob, the sexual torment of watching Leopoldine grow up and fall in love was exa exacerbated by the fact that she was now almost the same age as the actresses whose names and addresses had begun to appear in her father's secret diary. <laughs> There's like, I guess like, yeah, several ways to take that. Mm. The uh, the final one uh, that I was thinking of at the end of that quote is the like, how dare you grow up? Yeah. Because now you're making me feel creepy for like sleeping <laughs> yeah. with your friends. Literally. <laughs> Which which kind of does colour the way that we were talking about Cosette. Uh, like, because we were saying that we really did appreciate the, like, father-daughter stuff in the last episode. Especially kind of being like, yeah, it does really, it is really sad for Valjean that he is witnessing his daughter grow into, like, sexual maturity. But I feel mm. like we can we can enjoy that in Valjean because he's not also being like, oh, but now you're <laughs> the same age as that woman I fucked. Yeah. Whereas, like, turn the fucking mirror to Hugo and it's like, <laughs> God, you disgusting old man. <laughs> yeah, because the uh, that first chapter, that not chapter, paragraph that I read to us mm. just now, like, you know, he... he Jean Valjean is like wanting to be so like extravagant almost mm. that he'll keep his daughter's attention mm. and take her for little walks and stuff. That I think like uh, so I had actually read this chapter before the last episode, so now I've gotten the like two readings of it, I guess. Mm. And I think even at that point was like, 
okay, Jean Valjean, like, I get it, but okay, let's, like, let's not be too weird. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, it is hard with the um, Victor Hugo context to not be like, yeah, creep. Yeah. But I guess because we know that Jean Valjean is kind of Hugo's, like, I wish I was this good, kind mm-hmm. of. Because we've had this before where the scene with Fontaine, uh, and this came up in the first ever episode we recorded, where I read from his, was it Hugo's like, diary? His like yeah. his thoughts. Um, uh, I can't remember. Uh, uh, Chose view, uh, views from something. Yeah, yes. It... Yeah, it was like Hugo's letters to about his life or something. Yeah, um, it was his like... It wasn't so. It wasn't his diary, but it was like his um, autobiography. Uh-huh. Basically, yeah. That he, the scene you know with Fontaine, where Jean Valjean comes across her, sort of being attacked. So then she's defending herself, uh, gets taken to jail, and then Jean Valjean steps in and is like, "I can't just let this go on. Like I saw what happened. I need to say something." Mm-hmm. And he didn't even he didn't think twice about it. I think that's what it was. Yeah. And that that came from Victor Hugo's real life, where that all that did happen, mm-hmm. but that Victor Hugo, for a moment, was like, "I shouldn't say anything. Yeah. Like, I shouldn't help this woman out." You know, they was it like, "Oh, they might recognize me." Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're like, well, then hopefully they recognize you and are like, "What a what a well known." I was going to say upstanding, but what a well known <laughs> gentleman. Yeah, we're going to take his word for it. Yeah, that like in the end, Victor Hugo like did do the good thing, mm. but he hesitated. Whereas you know, in, in doing this Jean Valjean, he's kind of getting to rewrite that hesitation where he's just like good. You. Use, yeah, exactly that. And I have uh, on to the next quote, which follows that up extremely well. Um, the stories of the two daughters, Cosette and uh, Leopoldine, their romances and their father's disapproval of them are strikingly similar. Both daughters conduct a relationship in secret, which, when discovered by the fathers, devastates them and moves them to rage and the temptation of unheroic behaviour. In the fictional rewriting, however, rather than grudgingly capitulating, the father rises to heroic self-sacrifice. Faced with the option to allow his daughter's suitor to die at the barricades, Jean Valjean rescues him and arranges the marriage, providing a generous dowry and his blessing. Also, unlike in the story of Leopoldine, it is not the daughter who perishes shortly after the wedding, but the father. Through the wish fulfillment of fiction, Hugo blesses his daughter's love, gives his life in his daughter's place and allows her to live on in the love and prosperity of a bourgeois married life, including the sexuality of that life, finally coming to a kind of peace of the sexualized daughter, if only through sacrifice of the father. (laughs) Wow, we did it. We got a... Yeah, like Nemo was saying earlier, like, oh, it's nice. Did you say that you feel galvanized when it's like (laughs) thoughts that you have and then like a source comes along and is like here's what you said but like more intense yeah yeah it's interesting because um oh yeah because there were two things in what you said that i was like oh i need to remember both of them so so that one was directly to like most of what you were saying in in the idea of like yeah this is victor hugo literally having an event in his life and being like i can 
change it. But then the first point that you made was about when we see it with Valjean and Cosette, we have a bit of like, oh, like you're getting on a bit of thin nice, but it's still mostly cute because you are an asexual man. Like you mm. are literally coded as asexual. But then as soon as you see it as Hugo, you're like, ugh. <laughs> Because <laughs> the one thing that we keep mentioning as being like really like emotional to us is Jean Valjean having the the suitcase, right? And it has yeah. um, Cosette's little woolen outfit from her nun <laughs> days. Ruin it. <laughs> <laughs> no. Rob notes that the dress that Leopoldine had been wearing when she drowned was labeled as a oh. sacred relic by Hugo. That's quite sad, that one. Yeah, that's pretty sad. Yeah. Taken out of the context of the first quote. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he he keeps his daughters. I did not realize how just how much. Like I came into this podcast with my one bit of research, which was like, I vaguely know that Fontaine is a character who exists and I've heard the song, the sad song she sings. So, oh, it turns out that's based on Hugo's life. But I'm still here now, like, sh- like shot Pikachu. Just like, <laughs> what? This is literally just him being like, is not even my OC? Yeah. I... Is my Gary Stew of myself? Oh my God. Yeah, to be honest, like, even me, who's like, you know, drenched in it, living through it, can't go a day of my life without it. But... That reading that one, actually reading quite a few of these did make me quite like, ugh, you know, write what you know, but like, <laughs> um, men will literally write Les Miserables instead of going to therapy, I guess. <laughs> but the last thing in this, in this um, article that made me laugh, but then was also kind of sad. So I don't know. Again, men will go to do something instead of going to therapy is that um Hugo's friend Delphine de Gerardin 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 had been exposed to um occult practices while she was abroad in America and she brought them to Jersey in 1853 so the assembled group placed their hands on a three-legged round table and asked a series of questions of the supposedly attendant spirits who tapped out answers in code using one of the le- table's legs. After a few unsuccessful evenings around the table, notes taken by Auguste Vaquier indicate that it began to stir. When asked, Kiestu, the response that reportedly came was Filmort. The conversation seems to have continued with messages of love, sacrifice, and comfort from above. Which, yeah, it's like <sighs> Hugo in exile. Still so sad that he was yeah doing the doing the the Hasbro um, Ouija board. Ouija. He was doing Ouija. He was doing Ouija, and then someone in the party, probably uh, Delphine was like, I'm your dead daughter and I love you and I'm in heaven. Which I guess is kind of sad in a Fontaine at the end of Les Mis. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, uh, that that, um, article, because I only got snippets sent to me, um, (laughs) really does take you on an emotional journey. Because, like, I think the... (laughs) Because <laughs> we've kind of done the the unkind reading of it, <laughs> but I guess the 
the kind reading of it, mm. which is still like you fucking creepy old man, <laughs> is just that. There's nothing too weird about it. He's just sad that his daughter's growing up. Yeah. And it does bum him out that she's the age of all the young women he wants to sleep with, and that's probably making him feel guilt. Not enough guilt to stop, but like <laughs> yeah, <literally>. guilt. <laughs> so that's the kind of <laughs> the kind of reading is being like you're still fucking creep. Yeah. But like yeah. and I mean and that is that is what like it's likely that that is what it is. Mm. I feel like that is what the journey that that essay is going on. I mean, having not read the full thing. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And I think the the kind of idea of like uh, Leopoldine is literally like frozen in time mm. as a. Uh, it didn't say how old she was, but let's say she was like twenty one. That seems horribly on the older end. <laughs> let's yeah, see. I was let's just thinking her. that. I was like, oh, an old maid. <laughs> <laughs> She was 19. Oh, oh God. God. Oh, that's really sad. That's so young. Oh, God. I can't believe I chose 21 as a <laughs> young age. That just shows our age. Yeah, literally. <laughs> I can't even remember what I was saying. I got so... Dis- oh, yeah. That, he, that she was frozen as a 19-year-old, I guess. Mm. Oh, God, that's what... Like, okay, I was kind of imagining her as a, like, 21 to 23-year-old. But now I'm like, Hugo, you... All of these, like, 19-year-old actresses. Yeah. And, like, every time you look at one, you're like, oh, you remind me of my daughter. Mm. If I was Victor Hugo, I would, like, go and fuck some, like, older women. Like... <laughs> A 25-year-old, I guess he's too much. He's yeah. He's not seen all... <laughs> Couldn't get it out faster than you. Leopold Dine DiCaprio. Because, like, also, like, how long was she married? Like, when did... Uh, it was, like, uh, six months or something. Oh, okay. So she could have she could have been 19, but she could have been 18. Yeah. They got married on the 15th of February and she died on the 4th of September. Oh. So she was, yeah, 18 when so she got sure. married, maybe. But then they had to, like, make that marriage happen behind Hugo's back. So, like, how long was that going on for? Okay, what is very funny is that um, on um, Leopoldine Hugo's uh, Wikipedia page, if you click on spouse Charles Vakia, it takes you to Victor Hugo's oh Wikipedia God. page. The Wikipedia is being like, it, it, like haunted by Hugo's ghost. That's telling a story. Yeah, it sure is. So that that's this journal. I just thought it was a great time and that everyone needed to know about it. Um, yeah. Hysterical, like, when you read a thing, you are truly, like, deciding whether or not you want to take into account, like, historical context and, Mm. like, death of the author, blah, blah, blah. Uh Clearly, like, we are not letting the author die. Like, (laughs) it's just interesting. But then having to be like, but Jean Valjean isn't Victor Hugo. Yeah. I must untangle the ball of yarn (laughs) that is these two. Um, He's, I guess... Is it good that deep down Hugo was maybe like, get it together? <laughs> I do like that he 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 was like, Jean Valjean is me, but how can I make him not me? 
okay, he's asexual. <laughs> like, I was like, he doesn't fuck. Yeah. And we're like, enough said. Yeah. That's very different, in fact. Yeah, exactly. Like, enough said, indeed. Like, 100%. <laughs> well, it's like, it really super does make it more palatable. <laughs> yeah. They're like, let, let's, like, with our, like, kind of reading, there's, like, no incestuous thoughts. There's just, like, that man thing where you're like, my daughter, my property, who I do love, but, like, my daughter yeah. is not mine anymore. And yeah. also, I feel weird about fucking their friends. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, fine, whatever. It is more palatable that Jean Valjean isn't sleeping with women Cosette's age while he's like, I wish that I was the only one who would have her attention. 100%. And that the only people that he does, like, have nice relationships with are men his age. Yep. <laughs> wow, that's great to see. <laughs> Just, like, hang out in your age range, for God's sake. <sighs> well, we've had a good time here <laughs> this first that two thirds yeah um actually that did take almost a perfect amount of time like i've read a supplementary chapter but i didn't think that we would actually need more than this one <laughs> chunky chapter right that um really just quickly gets sad so like the end of that article you just read <laughs> so yeah he wishes that he could wear a good uniform and Cosette would uh, be satisfied not looking at young man <laughs> Um, <laughs> and that's all fine and normal. Yeah. And so sometimes, uh, over like their whole time living in Rupame, they'll like go on little outings to watch the sunrise mm. when the streets are really deserted and the birds are out. Cosette rising, like her namesake, the lark. And they go on these nice little walks to really isolated. <laughs> isolated makes it sound, uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> just <laughs> out of the way lonely place <laughs> come oh, no. come down this way <laughs> just doesn't like to be around people do you think and this is a thought that just came to me do you think that Hugo was so adamant the only reason that he made Jean Valjean not fuck is because he knew that all of his friends would be reading it and be like, bro, that's your daughter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's got surely at least one good friend was like, step carefully. <laughs> just like be careful. <laughs> they they just like to go on like walks yeah non-sexual when, walks yeah when there's not many people about because we don't like crowds because yeah. it's very stressful yeah because like, they're both it, autistic not because of anything sexual and incestual yeah. jean valjean likes these sort of like empty feels because as we know he's like a bit stressed when he's around too many people mm. just you know in case he gets recognized or whatever and Cosette doesn't mind going for him it's solitude for her it's freedom going mm. on these walks Oh, maybe I shouldn't have had it. That was like the perfect place to have you read that article. <laughs> but it sure is uh, coloring really... every interaction. Yeah. <laughs> it's all fine. And this is Jumbo Jean's fine. <laughs> he does not fuck. It's fine. This is fine. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> It's fine. It's Hugo's fault. <laughs> yeah, it's Hugo. It's it's not Jean Valjean. They are separate. Yeah. 
Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> when they go to this field, Cosette becomes like a little girl again. Oh, which... no. You're <laughs> in danger, Cosette. Run. <laughs> but, like, we do... This is just the, I don't want my daughter to grow up. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is its whole own separate issue, but it's fine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She will chase butterflies and make poppies into garlands to wear as a little crown. So just, like, have a good time again, and even after their life had taken a sad turn, they'd kept up their habit of early morning walks. So, it is autumn, 1831. Mm. October. One October morning. I, I saw, even though I just read the line 1831... The dyslexia saw October, re-saw 31, and was like, oh, it's Halloween! (laughs) Could be Halloween, he doesn't say that it's not. It's just, you know, one October morning that they've gone for one of these little walks and there's no one about, it's just like peace and quiet. Jean Valjean is just associating. (laughs) Uh, Fallen into one of those intense introspections in which the whole mind is absorbed imprisoning even the gaze. Um, Not the gaze. (laughs) He's thinking about Cosette and how happy he'd be if nothing would come between them. Mm. Um, She just fills his life with so much light and it's sweet. Um, Oh, I hope we haven't, like, ruined your favourite, like, (laughs) old man and your favourite, like, parenting trope. Oh, no. (laughs) Only time will tell. We'll have forgotten by next episode, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh... probably. <laughs> uh, I can hope for you. But yeah, so anyway, they're in the field, the skies starting to turn pink. When Cosette notices something coming over the horizon, this kind of lumbering mass that is moving in an orderly fashion that bristled and judded. And there's the sound of whips cracking. And it slowly becomes clear that this is a vehicle that's heading towards the toll gate where Jean Valjean is sitting. And there's like a little procession of them, like a couple of these vehicle-looking masses. Mm. And you start to be able to hear the sound of rattling chains. A fearsome kind of thing that emerges from the cavern of dreams. Yeah, it becomes clear that there's there's several carts following along each other in such a way that it kind of looks like a millipede Hmm. walking towards them. Closer and closer it gets. You can make out now that there's 24 men per vehicle, 12 on each side, back to back, facing out towards passersby with their legs dangling in the air. So it's like the cage of a cart with like a plank across the middle, but no floor. Okay. Which I guess needed less wood that I'm like, would you not just build a cart? And But I guess if they purposely want to do it like this. Mm. And the clinking uh, behind their backs, I'm, I feel like I keep saying becomes queer, uh, <laughs> reveals itself <laughs> to be chain and the shininess around their necks becomes clear uh, (laughs) that it's an iron collar so it's 24 men back to back in collars and chains across several of these little vehicles each man has his own collar but the chain is for all of them so binding them all together 
for each so the vehicles are in the middle of the road and on each side marches a double column of villainous looking guards in tricorn hats stained and dirty and ragged kitted out in veterans uniforms and undertaker's breeches Mm. almost in tatters with like red epaulets yellow shoulder belts bayonets kind of like feels like no one's like quite in the same uniform Mm. Bully boys seem to combine the abjectness of the beggar with the authority of the executioner. Bully boys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I enjoyed that translation. <laughs> so like, as this procession is sort of coming by, mm. a crowd just emerges out of nowhere, mm. which happens frequently in Paris, <laughs> mm. Hugo says, um, just to sort of like see this spectacle. Mm. And it's still like very early morning and it's cold and the, I don't think it's said it yet, but the men in chains, like clearly prisoners, yeah, um, are in like rags and hideous little woolen skull caps and like tired old coats and they've got wooden clogs on their bare feet. Mm. Many had women's hats because... Yeah. I guess, like, we had um, Tenardier wearing a women's chemise mm-hmm. earlier, so we love to put villains or... The incarcerated. Incarcerated. Because, yeah, uh, yeah um, Tenardier's been incarcerated a couple times, right? Mm-hmm. People that Hugo would consider villainous. Yeah. <laughs> in women's clothing to be like oh yeah though i would argue that this group of people in particular hugo isn't super anti them he's fairly um what's the word sympathetic yeah sympathetic i would agree so is it more just like these are the type of people who will end up in women's clothing i feel like well my reading of it was the like beggars can't be choosers Mm. and yeah if the choice is between a woman's piece of clothing and freezing you would probably choose the Mm. being warm yeah but still is interesting with the the gender thing yeah whenever he like makes a point of saying anything about gender it's like what's all this yeah 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 so they're just in like whatever rags they can be in yeah um the hairy chests are out to be seen, and they've got various tattoos, temples of love, flaming hearts, cupids, hmm. um, skin infections, unhealthy red blotches. Some of them have like used straw to kind of like braid these little stirrups for their feet so that hmm. to make them dangling a bit less painful, I imagine. Hmm. So all the prisoners are so they're all, at this point, they're all just silent, but it's the escorting troop who are just, like, cursing, just, like, suddenly will lash out with the cudgel and, mm. like, hit shoulder blades or skulls. And then there's just the this crowd that's now formed. There's just, like, bursts of laughter from gaggles of children who are following behind this convoy. So and you you know from the weather I guess from the clouds perhaps that it's going to rain in a day's time or maybe even in an hour's time and that they the prisoners are going to be absolutely soaked mm. and that once they're wet they're not going to dry off again and once they're chilled they're not going to warm up again mm. 
And the cudgel blows don't even spare the sick, who are laying still, uh, tied up with ropes, on the seventh wagon Mm. that they can, I guess, be laid out on. And then the sun comes out, and a tremendous brightness spilled from the east and seemed to set all these savages alight. Yep. Tongues were loosened, um, and suddenly who were like a moment ago just like really sullen and mm. silent there's sniggering and swearing and singing thoughts could be read on faces it was a dreadful moment demons seen with their masks removed brutal souls laid bare mm. and lit up they look really sinister and if a cheerful few have put little pipes in their mouths and they're just like <laughs> having a time um and then there's just like throwing vermin at the crowd picking on the women there was not one of these creatures who was not deformed by misery. Mm. And then at the head of the column, a song's broken out called The Vestal Virgin. So they're all like singing this jocular song. Mm. And the respectable citizens who are watching this all happen mm-hmm. are listening with idiotic delight on their faces to these bawdy songs sung by specters. And we get like all... There's not, like, one flavour of man who can end up in this sort of state. Like, we've got old man, adolescence, bold man, the sullenly resigned, the cynically monstrous, mm-hmm. um, the savagely grimacing, mm-hmm. the dementedly posturing, mm-hmm. brutish faces, young girlish faces, baby faces, thin and all but dead skeletal faces, one black man... In, on the final cart and all Hugo has to say on that is perhaps he had been a slave and could compare chains yeah he is one of two people no three no two Hume, Hume Hugo uh, the guy with the spade yeah Hume Hugo who's the who's Patron Minette. He is one of Tunadi's gang. And then there's this guy who could perhaps compare chains. And then there's the devil in disguise. Um, mm. Possibly Bulatruel, but it's not sure whether they are the same person. So yeah, there are three explicitly named black men. And this is one of them. Which is really great. All three are criminals. <laughs> Yay! <Yep. laughs> he goes like, no more on that. Anyway. <laughs> Woo! Yes, I have said a lot about this. Mm. So, you know, as ever. I, I The reason I was silent for a bit was because I was actually noting down. I, I hadn't realized that um, he'd also used Fiend Hib as well, because that was one of the, um, it was in slightly earlier when you were talking about them being monstrous and savages and stuff. Mm. And one of um, the other things was Fiend, because that was the, the, the big quote when they're like, when they were putting the black face on and the the quote uh, was like colliers negroes or fiends whichever you fear most and i was like oh again it's literally that again um yeah and the yeah. the fear thing is the thing that comes comes up again as yeah. we will see <laughs> <laughs> like all look like prime scum <laughs> <laughs> Woo! and they've all just sort of been plopped in these carts in probably alphabetical disorder. (laughs) (laughs) Now's Um, really the time for puns. mm. For each chain gang emerged a common identity. So you'll get one guy who sings 
And after him comes a guy who'll yell, a third mm. begged, one distinguished by a gnashing of teeth. Another will threaten bystanders, another cursed and swore. The last is silent as the tomb. And I can imagine which one Hugo, uh, Jean Valjean, Jean Valjean was. Mm. Dante might have thought he was seeing the seven circles of hell in procession. (laughs) One of the guards just like takes out his cudgel and made as if to stir these human dung heaps. And old woman in the crowd is pointing at them and these little five-year-old boys like, well, let that be a lesson to you, young rascal. Hugo, like, I don't understand because, like, Hugo's whole thing is like, oh, we should, like, take care of these people. Like, they've been unfairly incarcerated and they're humans and no person is a weed and all that kind of stuff. And then he's like, anyway, this crowd of pedophiles and horrific black people turned up and then they were all gross and evil and they were swearing and spitting on children and we should hate them it's like why are you doing this (laughs) it's like because before we really got in in that you were like you know he's sympathetic Mm, that mm. i guess like it he is a human hugo uh (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that yeah like the first part is very sympathetic I guess mm. but then yeah he is like disgusting <laughs> human dung but then are we meant to be sort of seeing that and be and being like oh mm. but then if, if at the time that is what people like literally thought like yeah like people would have been jeering yeah so would they be like oh seeing it written down is making me feel bad <laughs> but like coming from the man who's like if the reader hadn't guessed, it was Jean Valjean. Yeah, <laughs> like he, he does spell things out pretty. Yeah, I mean, also like Waterloo, the sewer. Because, because part of me is like, okay, maybe you're right. Maybe it's because you know Jean Valjean is about to be like, oh fuck, this is the worst day of my life. Yeah, I can't believe that I've let Cosette see this and she's going to hate me forever if she finds out spoilers for the next paragraph uh, and, and so whether it is Hugo being like this is kind of uh, Jean Valjean's POV where he's like oh that's what Cosette's going to think but then surely what would make it di- sh- surely we should have more of Hugo being like that's what the crowd thought because then Jean Valjean can see it in other people and be like, oh, because it's going to be like one of them, rather than have the narrator say it, because mm. because then we, the audience, we, the reader, are going to be like, well, that's just like the normal thing to think, right? Yeah, I guess there's like that little bit where he's like, respectable, respectable citizens are listening with idiotic delight um, mm. at these songs being sung. That, but the, yeah, I get we, like one hundred percent agreeing with you. Uh, mm-hmm. Not defending Hugo hard. <laughs> um, <laughs> we'll never defend him too hard. You can if you want. <laughs> no. <laughs> I was thinking the other day that I was like, if our podcast was a fanfic, we'd have to tag like Hugo bashing, <laughs> <laughs> flamefic. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like he takes that one instance, but it's more like impl. Like, calling the crowd idiotic, okay, I guess that's not so much implied. Mm. But that's kind of just at their, like, oh, they're finding these sort of pervy songs, I guess, yeah. uh, humorous. Yeah. But yeah, that, well, we'll, we'll finish it out, uh-huh. the chapter, and then um, 
Then we'll put him on trial. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, let that be a lesson to you, young rascal. <laughs> and the singing and swearing gets louder, and the man who seems to be the escort captain starts cracking his whip, and that signals a terrible volley of blows sounding like hail just like hitting just like randomly almost just like whatever bit of person they can hit Mm. many of the prisoners like roaring and foaming at the mouth with rage because of this and that makes the younger youngsters come running like a cloud of flies on these wounds so they're just like woo entertainment (laughs) jean valjean's gaze has become frightful his eyes are unseeing. Like, if he was, like, kind of just, like, disassociating, but, mm. like, just, like, thinking on his daughter, so he wasn't really there, but he was, like, I think it was, like, a neutral good disassociation, yeah. I guess, if one of those is possible. Now yeah. it is not good. No, 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 no. It's gone from disassociation because, ah, like, a, a nice little, like, uh, lost-in-thought moment to mm. a PTSD disassociation. Yeah. Full blown. Yeah. Um, these poor wretches replace sight. He's unaware of reality. Uh, in his eyes, it's just like the blazing reflections of terror and cat- catastrophe. He's not observing a spectacle. He's enduring a vision. Mm. And he wants to get to his feet and run away, but he can't move a, a muscle. He's just transfixed by this sight. Until he's finally able to clap his hand to his forehead, recalls that he likely has like come through the same route when he oh. was imprisoned. Yeah, and he's like, oh, thirty-five years ago, I like I'm I passed through this gate, and in her own way, Cosette is no less appalled. She doesn't understand really what she's seeing. It takes her breath away, and at length cries out, "Father, what on earth is in those carts?" Mm. And he replies, "Convicts." Where are they going? To the prison hulks. Then there's a further frenzy of whips and clubs and swipes from the flat of swords and the convicts cringe away. A hideous submission was extorted by this punishment and they fall silent again. Mm. And Cosette just trembles uh, in the aftermath of that and is like, Father, are they men? And he says, Sometimes. Sometimes, said the poor wretch. So yeah, this is the chain gang that set out before daybreak and wouldn't always go on this route, but because the king is going to be using the road, <laughs> using a road later, oh, no. <laughs> they have done a detour that's going to add three or four days to this journey with them just like locked up in these carts, no matter what the weather is and no matter how sick. <sighs> It's giving very um, uh, hospital patients are getting their surgeries cancelled because the Queen is being buried uh-huh. on Monday the 19th of September. Oh, it's, it's almost like one-to-one. <gasps> like, happening. Weird, but one of these is happening um, 200 years ago and one of these is <laughs> happening in the year 2022. But Nemo, to spare the royal personage the sight of such an ordeal, could like you, you gotta do these things sometimes. Oh god. Oh god. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna get deported for holding a sign <laughs> saying Kumanaki. <laughs> well, just as Nemo went home devastated, <laughs> so did Jean Valjean. Yeah. And 
on their way back, Cosette had been asking him further questions, but he's just like, oh god. So he doesn't hear any of them until they're back home and he hears her quietly saying like to herself, oh, I think if I was ever to cross paths with one of those men, oh dear god, I'd die just from looking him in the face. <laughs> yeah. Luckily, the next day there was a celebration in Paris for some occasion or another, and Jean Valjean's like, against habit, we're going to go and celebrate. No reason. Would love for this to distract you from the uh, chilling memory of yesterday. And he puts on his National Guard uniform for the event mm. with a vague inward feeling of a man taking refuge. So he's like, I'm fine in my cosplay. It's yeah. fine. Yeah, I am a normal man. I yeah, am a normal man. man. And Cosette as well welcomes a distra- distraction. An adolescent, and we love that. A distraction <laughs> at that age, apparently. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's true. So Jean Valjean's like, yeah, I succeeded. That hideous impression has left... No, that hideous vision has left no lasting impression. We did it, guys. Mm. Um, and then a few days later, they're out in the, gar- in the garden, and Cosette's got a daisy, and it's just, like, pulling the petals off. And she's not acquainted with the charming folklore tradition. He loves me, he loves me not. (laughs) He would have taught her. So she's toying with the flower instinctively, innocently, not thinking of, like, the implications of it, I guess. Mm. Looking very, like, melancholy, incarnate. And Valjean is watching Spellbound. And there's like robins cheeping and white clouds in the sky and she's intently plucking her flower and she seems to be musing on something. But it must have been something pleasant. And then she looks over her shoulder with the delicate languor of a swan and says to Valjean, Father, what exactly are the prison hulks? Mm. And that's where we leave the book. So I guess like we get all the like they're human trash hmm. and evil and disgusting. But then I guess like then we do get Valjean, who we do like we know well has like been through all of this. Hmm. And I, th- I think especially with the last description of the types of prisoners that we see being the silent as the tomb one, which like hmm. we we all know Valjean by now, right? Hmm. All that, like, so I would assume he was that, but then I have now just recalled that they were like, he was like a wild wolf or something when he yeah. was in jail, where he'd just like store himself up and then just like attempt to get out. Mm. But I can't imagine him swearing, but actually, no, we know that he was like, ah, fuck you, child. Yeah. Yeah. I-, I think he was described as a tiger trying to get out of its cage, and he was like, there was that bit where he was really angry and Hugo was like, anger in someone who's wrong is one thing, but anger in someone who is right is fury, like is mm. is is righteous fury or something like that. And, and was like, and Jean Valjean was righteous. Um, yeah. But yeah, I don't know. I'm still torn because I'm like, because it, it, it really has the like, oh, well, Jean Valjean, my blobo, he's not like other girls. Yeah. Yeah, because I was like talking myself into being like, with the benefit of the doubt <laughs> and giving a lot of benefit here, yeah, like, yeah. 
he's reminding us like oh these are prisoners and you the reader would probably also like yeah jeering at the mm. at them but remember my blobo who is your blobo now too surely yeah yeah he was one of these men and look how it's affecting him mm. that i was like talking myself into that and then remembered that maybe he wasn't this silent type and then like talk myself back out i don't know yeah yeah which is so bizarre because it's like he got this far into the novel where his protagonist is literally <laughs> like that's what you started off doing and then i don't know started being like actually maybe convicts are bad <laughs> and it's like but you were trying to convince everyone that people who have been incarcerated are people first like and mm. that we should treat them well no matter how they're acting because you don't know what traumas they've been through but now you're like oh well not these ones though not this one yeah now that this one is my gary stew yeah 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 were we too kind saying that he was sympathetic <laughs> not like two minutes before i dove into yeah, it yeah maybe well it left a, it like in my head, I was like, oh, it was a fairly sympathetic thing, but maybe it's just because I was really, like, I, I I, wanted that to be the case. And then you yeah. described it happening, and I was like, oh, this is not as sympathetic as I remember it being, actually. I get, like, he could definitely do more <laughs> at all, all yeah. times. Um, but, like, also it's Hugo, so, like, he's definitely, like, we do love Jean Valjean. Mm. But Hugo's definitely assuming that we would love his creations. Yeah, true. So maybe he is actually thinking this is enough mm. by being, look how horrified Jean Valjean is. But then Jean Valjean, the impression I get is less that he's like, oh my God, those other men could be like me. Mm. And it's more like, I'm like, he's very valid in those like... Not like, wow, Jean Valjean, how dare you not be thinking about the other people and just dealing with your trauma. Yeah. But that, yeah, that it was more like a rea- the trauma response to like the violence that he went through. Mm. Yeah, that... I forgot the, the, the line of like, he, he wasn't watching a vision, he was in it. Um, he was very much... Mm. And so is being very hyper aware of like what everyone is saying and maybe remembering the stuff that was said to him but yeah again like yeah. I, I don't I feel like that's too fair on Hugo uh, like that uh, he he has this opportunity I guess to directly be like the fucking public was in the wrong hair and isn't doing that yeah because I like do 1000% believe that like this is how crowds were reacting yeah yeah but yeah there's not like much being like yeah you do that reader think on that yeah like a little bit but it is all very much like this one blobo yeah yeah but like convict equals criminal <laughs> like that that incarceration is like proof of their guilt i guess yeah when we know that jean Valjean was incarcerated for like trying not to die yeah exactly like like what are these yeah yeah so i yeah i'm not sold i'm in i'm yeah. rescinding my my <laughs> he was sympathetic towards them yeah i think this is very in keeping with like because you know I, I feel like it's come up several times but it's the only one-to-one i can ever think of like uh with like oliver twist mm. where dickens is like oh you think about those poor people <sighs> But then, like, 
most of them are the villains like yeah. they're actually the like and even oliver is like it turns out actually is middle class <laughs> yeah, yeah. so it's like well of course he was good and fine yeah. and like not at all shaped by these horrible experiences because he's got the soul of a upper class angel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His blood like... <laughs> was like you, you can tell yeah. that he's a good person. What well, do I guess? Like Jean Valjean doesn't have any of that. And yeah, Cosette's like half upper class blood, but her dad's a bastard. So <laughs> yeah. Not quite one-to-one with that, but you know where you're like, you came out here with like some intentions that <laughs> were good on paper. Yeah. Don't know. Hard, hard. I, 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 yeah. yeah, I feel like it's the same thing that we usually come to, which is we say one thing about Victor Hugo, then we read it, <laughs> and then we're like, wait a second. <laughs> hold on. This doesn't hold up under scrutiny. <laughs> and yet every episode we're like... <laughs> Well, I know that we like to talk a lot of shit about Hugo here. We're all friends here. But, like, one time he did this thing, and then we're like, I take it back. (laughs) But I'm sure next episode we'll be like, I know we all talk a lot of shit about Hugo around here. Well, (laughs) we couldn't have talked more shit at the beginning. Yeah. It's been an episode. It sure has. We sure have said a lot of things. (laughs) That will hold up under scrutiny, question mark? Yeah, cast a lot of allegations that Nemo <laughs> Martin is, like, editing in their head as we speak. Feel free to edit out whatever keeps you safe. <laughs> it's just, I'm gonna, like, modulate your voice so it sounds like any of the bad things that I've said come out of your mouth. <laughs> I think it's for the best. And on that note, <laughs> Stevie mm. should go to prison for saying the bad words and I'll stand and cheer and be like, ha ha ha, look at that criminal. Um, this has been Brad and Barricade's Lamest Podcast, produced by me, Nemo Martin and Julian Yap. It was a Captain's Collection podcast. If you have any comments, questions or quibbles, which I'm sure you will because we say facts like they're nothing and they really are nothing to be honest we say things that come off the tip of our tongues you can email us lamospodcast l-e-s-m-i-s-g at gmail.com or on twitter lamospodcast or on tumblr at bread and barricades uh, if you like this show you can donate to our Kofi or our patreon which are in the show notes or you can give us five stars on spotify or itunes or wherever you do your podcasting from our audio designer is Jade, who you can find on her website, jdwasabi.com, or on her bandcamp, jdwasabi.bandcamp.com. And I believe that's everything, so, you know, thanks for listening. Allegedly! <laughs> that keeps us safe from everything, right? Allegedly! Everything said on this podcast is, uh, allegedly. That is to say... Uh, as your legal department, <laughs> I just felt like it needed to be added. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>